Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. This week's topic, the racial wealth gap is shocking, and we're all being hurt. An interview with Josh Hoxie and Emmanuel Nieves. Are you just trying to get by? Are you impressed by the fact that James pronounced uh, Emmanuel's name correctly? Uh (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Take it away, James. Okay. So how do you feel when you hear that the average black family would have to work 228 years to build the wealth of the average white family today? And if something doesn't change, that gap will worsen. If you think that doesn't impact you, guess again. Whatever our race or gender, most of us focus on our own struggles, feeling we have to fight for ourselves, even if we care about others. So how can we admit that slavery and institutional racism have created virtually insurmountable obstacles for blacks, and Hispanics are also losing out? Our security would feel threatened. But when we realize that we're all impacted by the race gap, we see that we can't afford not to fight for one another. Our guests are among the co-authors of a new study showing that there is a growing income gap between blacks, Hispanics, and whites. They are here to share the facts, and we are here to talk about how all income inequality affects us all. Whatever your race, stay with us. And now, here's Beth. Hi, welcome everybody uh, to Interrevolutionary Radio. Well, I'm seeing a message here that says answering this call will put your active call on hold. So I have no idea what that means. And I'm going to ignore that message and assume that we are on the air. Right? James, you hear me. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. Well, I'm very, very grateful to our guests today because they have all kinds of information uh, that I don't have and that we don't have and that we don't really want to know. But I guess we have to, right? So, (laughs) you know how that is, right? So, we didn't have to go through the arduous work of putting all this uh, information together. That's what we have Josh and Emmanuel for. And uh, so, we're going to be benefiting from that. But before we get to that, we have the news of the Inner Revolution, as usual. And, you know, for those of you who are new to our show, the Inner Revolution is about really shifting our consciousness to oneness, accountability, and mutual support. So, uh, you know, easier said than done, right? Um, we know we need to be accountable. And we know we need to be acting more in the oneness because uh, not doing so is really killing ourselves, our planet. You know, we're disconnected, we're unhappy, we're eating, we're stressed, you know, we're fighting each other, we're not harmonious, we're not getting the love we need. Well, that's my opinion. So, one is accountability and mutual support. So, we have some really interesting little snippets of news that I want to share with you today. And then I'm going to make a commentary. Uh, A lot of this is about accountability. So, there is some progress. The New York Times reported this week that court costs entrap non-white poor juvenile offenders. See, this first story is in honor of our show today, which we're going to be talking about minorities and, you know, inequality, income inequality. So people said, you know, I was talking to a really nice guy the other day. I'm not going to say who he was, but he was really, no, it wasn't a flirtation. It was a medical thing, right? Very compassionate guy. And he is like, Welfare is no good and, you know, blacks are lazy. And I mean, that was the energy that was coming across. 
And then you start seeing, see, this is what happens when you don't get information. So you start seeing articles like this one in the New York Times that, that we know there's a disproportionate number of minorities that get arrested for the same things that their white you know, peers are doing. And in fact, this is going to come up a little later too in the news. And then they get stuck with all of these um, difficult fines and this and that that they have to pay for. I didn't even know about this. And so here are these juveniles. They're already in debt. And they have been arrested disproportionately. So you take poorer people and you give them fines, right, that they can't pay for it. Who's going to pay? But the poor mother who's working seven jobs to try to support the family. And then people say, I don't get it. I don't understand why black people just don't raise themselves by their bootstraps. See what I'm saying? So, you know, we're trying to wake up to the reality. And uh, Josh and Emmanuel are going to be bringing us a lot of information. But I just wanted to share that with you first because I thought that was really interesting. Also, in the accountability positive news department, it turns out that churches are convening conversations about race in the style of AA. That's Alcoholics Anonymous. A pastor in Sunnyvale, California, is offering a venue, and they're mostly but not exclusively white, and they're talking about racism and how it got ingrained in them and what racist attitudes they have. That's called Racist Anonymous. Isn't that cool? And I want to tell you another thing that shows accountability. Here we go. Uh, the Huffington Post reported that crime survivors are organizing for criminal justice reform, too. You know, there's a lot of people out there saying, we've got to in- reform this insane criminal justice system. We're incarcerating people in massive ways. We've, it's terrible, and it's disproportionately against minorities, of course. So here it is. Somebody is organizing the victims of crime to support uh, this change in the criminal justice system. I think that's awesome. A linchpin of all these developments is a former punk drummer turned prosecutor named Lenore Anderson. She was the co-author and campaign chair of Proposition 47, the state ballot initi- initiative that reclassified several felonies, and the nonprofit she leads organized the network of crime survivors. Now she's going on and she's trying to bring this to other states and Stuff like that. But see, here's somebody who has really, in from a spirit of oneness, really understands that it's not making us safer to lock up all these people. And I think that's fantastic. And she being a crime survivor, you know, she can talk and people will listen to her. Speaking of accountability, Georgetown University. Nearly two centuries after it profited from the sale of 272 slaves, says it will embark on a series of steps to atone for the past, including awarding preferential status in the admissions process to descendants of the enslaved. And they're also changing the names of some buildings, and they're trying to get they, what they haven't done yet is uh, offered scholarships to these people, but at least they're offering some kind of preferential status in getting people into the school. And the, they're apologizing for slavery. See, and they're talking about something, see, just like I was saying before, that we don't think about 
oh, these juvenile defenders, they get arrested, and then suddenly they're in debt, you know, their lives are ruined, uh, even if they don't have records, right? So much happens to people. This is a recognition, see, that there's real discrimination and has real impact. Well, Georgetown University is admitting that wealth was built on slavery. And I think that's very cool. And they want to do something about it. So that is a step. Now, on the other hand, talking about lack of accountability, we have another week of ghastly stories about corporate greed. For example, General Motors switched to the Japanese airbag by Takata. You know, there's been a big scandal about these Takata airbags and how unsafe they are and all that. Well, they were warned that these airbags weren't safe, but that didn't stop them from using them because they saved a couple of bucks, right? So, and Todd, who is our producer, sent us a story about a secretive tribunal. Now, this is going to be shocking. Are you sitting down? Todd Benton sent us a story about secretive tribunal that corporations use against governments. International corporations have been able to avoid punishment for toxic pollution, meaning they are not being held accountable, and worse, by appealing to a secretive and little-known international tribunal. It's called the Investor State Dispute Settlement Program, or ISDS, and an 18-month investigation by BuzzFeed News raises serious questions about its judgment and its power. So that's kind of scary, you know. These guys can go in and say, oh, we don't want to listen to the nations and their rules and regulations around the environment because we know better. So they, you know, dump toxins and they say, oh, you can't prosecute us no matter what your laws are. On the other hand, I want to tell you something positive, okay? There is a a website that was started by a guy who is an internet porn junkie, and he got clean from internet porn. He says it's an addiction, a compulsion, and he wants to support others to do the same. So I'm going to hand out this. It's the, uh, the organization is called NoFap, and don't ask me what NoFap means. There was some kind of explanation, which I didn't follow. So it's N-O-F as in fanciful, A-P, NoFap.com. So if you happen to be addicted to pornography on the Internet, please take a look at this website and see if you can get some support there. We don't mind if you're addicted to interrevolutionary radio. In fact, we would like more people to be addicted to Interrevolutionary Radio. So to round out the news of the week, what is a week without Donald Trump? Okay, not only did we have this horrific fiasco where Donald Trump goes to Mexico and bullies the weak Mexican president who now has to redeem himself by saying, I never said that we would pay for the wall, which he probably didn't. But he stood there and he never called Donald Trump on anything. Well, now there's a big flap from Mexicans, right? But Trump thinks, and I'm sorry, his supporters feel like he really got this public relations coup. He is meeting with heads of state, and nobody stood up to him, even though he has insulted Mexicans. Uh, So that's pretty bad. But better than that, and I'm going to ask Josh and Emmanuel about that. Trump has a tax proposal that is going to give the rich a bigger tax 
break around real estate. So he himself will be getting a tax break by his own proposals. Needless to say, I could not follow what exactly they were talking about. That's why we have experts. So what I want to say, I guess, to kind of complete this cycle of news is, oh my God, do we have a lot to do. In fact, let me tell you one more thing. I got an email from Avaz, which is an organization that goes out there and he, they, they try to get petitions. They try to rally millions of people for good causes. And I got a, uh, a, a, an email from them and it said, the oceans are collapsing with vast disturbing dead areas reporting to be expanding in the Pacific. Nobody's questioning that, of course. But hope is also rising with more oceans protected last year than ever before. And it said this week could decide whether collapse or conservation wins the race. Scientists say if we conserve 30% of our oceans, that will be enough to regenerate the rest. And this plan is actually on the table at the powerful World Conservation Congress in three days. I think I got this yesterday. But countries with fishing lobbies like Japan are opposing the plan because, see, we're not accountable for what we do to the ocean, right? So they're asking people to sign this petition. And I suggest that you go to Avaz's website if you're interested in that. But what I want to say is this. You know, I look at people who are in the healthcare profession. Okay, you're going to think this is totally far-fetched, but you're going to see how all this fits in a minute. I've been going to the hospital lately and to medical visits lately, and I've been looking at these people who are taking care of me, and some of them are really great people, very kind, very caring people, and they are not taking care of themselves. It's obvious many of them are extremely overweight, out of shape, not doing well, and they're taking care of me. So I'm trying to see if I can support those people to take care, better care of themselves. But, okay, what does this have to do with anything? Do you see the connection between that and the oceans? We are so short-sighted that we think that we can go ahead dumping, whether it's toxins in ourselves, whether it's alcohol, overeating, under-exercising, uh, negative energy, uh, overstress, overwork, not sleeping enough, drugs, you know, the gamut, and that we can just keep doing this and that the day will not come that we can't regenerate anymore. But see, with this story about the ocean, it makes me want to cry, just like I want to cry for the people. We are pushing our planet to the point that we can't regenerate anymore. And yet our short-term thinking, me, 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 I need to make a buck, gets in the way of our common sense. And so I'm asking you not only to take a look at the oceans, but to take a look at yourself and all of us to take a look at ourselves to see if we're our little ego agendas. Oh, I got to look good, so I got to wear high heels. Or I got to look good, so I have to, you know, uh, work 20 hours a day so the boss uh, notices me or whatever it is. These short-term goals, they cost us dearly, and sometimes we can't regenerate. So with that, I'm begging us 
to look within and see how we're being to ourselves and to our planet and also to one another. And speaking of to one another, I'd like to introduce you to Josh Hoxie and Emmanuel Nieves. Hi, guys. Hello, Beth. Hi, Beth. Hi. So we first we have a Josh. Say hi, Josh. Hi, Beth. And then we have Emmanuel. Hello, Beth. Hello, and James. And uh, first of all, I'm just so happy to have you back, Josh. We've had so much fun with you before. You're so full of information, and we never get to the end of what you want to tell us. And so <laughs> there's always a reason to have you back. And Emmanuel is, is new to our show, but I'm sure he's going to be equally great. And you're going to tell us not only the horror story of income inequality with minorities, but you're going to tell us how that hurts all of us. I bet you have the answer to both those questions. So first of all, Josh, can you tell us a little bit about this paper that you and Emmanuel, and I couldn't quite figure out if there were a whole bunch of other people involved in in making this report. So just give us the scoop here. Uh, Sure. Development, CFED. Uh, to produce this report on the racial wealth divide. The report was titled, The Ever-Growing Gap Without Change, African-American and Latino Families Won't Match White Wealth for Centuries. Emmanuel and I were co-authors along with Chuck Collins and Diedrich Asante Mohammed at CFED. And what the report did was look over the past 30 years to see what trends we've seen develop in uh, the racial wealth divide and then try and project those trends into the future to see what we might expect if current trends continue. And what we found was really staggering. I mean, folks know that there is a racial wealth disparity in this country. I don't think that's breaking news to anyone. (laughs) Well, you haven't been where I live. (laughs) Okay. Well, for for folks who are are even... Remotely uh, aware, aware. <laughs> uh, of what's going on. Uh, the numbers that we found, I, I think, are, are absolutely staggering. Um, the rate of growth for white families over the past 30 years um, compared to black families, it was three times greater for white families than black families. Um, and one of the stats from our report, if current trends were co- to continue, it would take the typical black family over 200 years to reach the level of wealth that the typical white family already is experiencing today. Um, So get this. If you feel like you're under financial stress and you happen to be white, think about what it's like to be black. You know, it's not like we're saying that white workers have too much money. But we're just saying, oh, wait a minute, let's put, your, put ourselves in the other one's shoes. Right, yeah, I mean, for, for what our report looks at, um, I mean, we're looking at over the next 30 years, um, the racial wealth divide between not just black and white, but Latino and white families will double from its current rate at about $500,000, which is the gap between the average white family and the average black and Latino family to over a million dollars, which will be the gap um, by 2043, looking 30 years past the most recent data we have. So things look like they're stag- uh, staggered today. They will be exceptionally more staggered 
uh, in the coming decades. So, Emmanuel, how do you explain this? How do you explain this divide? Uh, so there's a, I think, um, you know, Josh mentioned the, the rate of growth um, as being, you know, uh, substantially lower for black and Latino families. But, but you know, that, that rate of growth did not uh, happen on its own. You know, there's uh, undergirding um, the racial wealth uh, disparity that we see in this country uh, is really kind of a decade-long uh, systematic uh, um, uh, you know um, systematic disadvantages that black and Latino families have been facing uh, really kind of uh, supercharged by federal public policies and so you know over the last uh, hundred years there has been a number of different policies and beyond really you know the last hundred years and beyond there have been a number of, of federal public policies that have uh, worked to build the wealth of all Americans um, but for one reason or another, either by design or by accident, those policies have really benefited white households and white workers and white individuals um, while excluding uh, black, Latinos, uh, Asians, and, and uh, you know, a whole host of other uh, communities of color. And so just to give you, you know, a little, a little sampling of what, what, what we know to be um, some of these things that have impacted this, this rate of growth, um, you know, we've seen that uh, in 1935, the exclusion, uh, the Social Security Act was passed. Uh, however, um, uh, farm workers and domestic workers who were predominantly people of color were excluded from that first initial uh, passage of, of, of the Social Security Act. Uh, a couple years uh, after that, you know, uh, we passed the first uh, minimum wage protections in this country. And again, there was an exclusion of, of, of a certain number of tip-based professions, which unsurprisingly were held by, you know, um, uh, people of color. Uh, fast forward, uh, you know, a little bit uh, later and you have um, the federal government actively, you know, this is post-Depression, uh, post-World War II, uh, the federal government really trying to figure out how to, um, how to, how to build the wealth of, of communities uh, in this country through home ownership and, and, and helping, you know, returning veterans to, to um, not only uh, readjust to, to civilian life, but also help them to, to become more financially stable. And so uh, in, the, in the housing sector, you had redlining, which, you know, lasted for 30 some odd years. And while the federal government really changed the way that we finance homes so, in this country. Uh, you have to explain to uh, some people may sure. not know what redlining is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, um, at, at one point in the, in the, you know, in the early part of the, the century, uh, the government changed the way that homes were purchased. And so instead of, you know, um, purchasing your home in a lump sum fashion, you know, uh, financial products were developed to be able to, to purchase a home over a 30-year period or, you know, what have you. Uh, and so that really helped to boost home ownership in this country. Uh, however, uh, while that was kind of the open policy for everyone, uh, redlining, uh, this practice known as redlining, really excluded communities of color from purchasing at home. And what redlining was, you know, if you, there was these uh, maps developed by the Federal Housing Administration uh, and other government agencies that had, uh, you know, that had kind of insurance uh, maps of different neighborhoods, and they would literally, uh, you know, color a, a block of that section in red, uh, because, you know, that was deemed uh, an unsafe kind of, you know, an unsafe investment uh, for the federal government to be able to insure those homes. And unsurprisingly, those red blocks, that red coloring were uh, communities of, you know, were communities that were filled uh, with communities of color. And so by doing that, they not only, you know, um, uh, limited the, the opportunity to access these new financial products and, 
and have the federal government uh, guarantee these loans to banks making these products. But essentially, they you know they carved out entire sections of neighborhoods and deemed them un uh, you know deemed the risky uh, investments for for these communities. And so you you have two kind of wealth building tracks happening at the same time. Uh, white families and white workers are able to purchase a home, build wealth that then, that can then be passed on to the next generation. While uh, communities of color were not able to do that, uh, and at the same time, you know, they were targeted for predatory lending practices um, throughout the country as well. Uh, and and so yeah, so those are you know those are just a handful of things, but that's really kind of the drivers of of the of the figures that that, that Josh had mentioned. Um, and these are things you know, just like wealth is passed on from one generation to the next. This kind of racial wealth uh, inequality has been passed on from from one generation to the next, and this is where we are now. Well, I can see somebody in the audience. Of course, none of our listeners would think this, but I could see it. Somebody saying, "Well, of course they didn't want to." Uh, you know, uh, those black poor people—they were scumbags. They would, or they would never be able to pay it back. Or I don't blame them, or whatever. You know, what have you got to say to that? And either one of you can jump in. Unless it becomes too chaotic and I'll start calling on you guys again. But what so, do you have um, to say? Go ahead, Emmanuel. I was going to say, you know, I think to, to folks who, who would say that argument, there was a really great uh, article um, a couple years back by Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, The Case for Reparations. Uh, and in that, you know, he, he talked about redlining and kind of the history of it. But he also had, uh, you know, stories and, and examples of, uh, black communities and black homeowners, you know, attempting to purchase a home. And what they did was that they, they purchased a home, and I put that in quote, or at least the purchase part, um, but the product was set up to, to, you know, to make the payments and that they would go directly to the homeowner and not towards building equity. Um, and there, you know, and, and people, uh, you know, across the country were tied into that, but they were, you know, they were making their payments and they were trying to build up this equity. And at the same time, they had a system that was kind of, you know, uh, stripping their wealth. So I would say, you know, I would say that that communities uh, did try and have been trying to build up wealth through home ownership and other different uh, methods. But but you know, they're they're running against these systematic and discriminatory barriers that are not making it uh, uh, as simple or as easy as as it is for other communities. You know, one of the concerns that I have is that people really don't get it. And um, just like the fellow that I was talking to uh, just the other day, you know, just does not get it. He, you know, I think in his mind, you know, he sees, okay, there was slavery. Yeah, that sucked. But boy, that was a long time ago. What are you still moaning and groaning about? You know, without realizing, see, some of the things that you've talked about, about Social Security for... uh, you know, the, who are domestic workers? Mostly women and predominantly black women working for white women, right? <laughs> so, so, yeah, do the white women want to pay workers' compensation? I mean, I can, I can get it. I need somebody to help clean my house. Man, I'm not a corporation. Where am I going to get the money from? You know? So, you know, the people are, you know, are set up against each other. I'm not from the wealthy class. You know? I'm just old. So, um, you know, there, people get sort of set up against each other. But, and, and, and farm workers, oh, well, they don't even exist. You know, <laughs> they're those people who come in, just uh, bend over the fields, and then are supposed to disappear, you know, yeah. when, uh, when the time comes uh, with the little bit of money that they have. Um, 
And they're not the same as us. You know, they're Spanish-speaking. They don't get proper toilets or anything like that. It's just an attitude of them and us, you know, of not really realizing. And so I think that what we're talking about is that people don't realize that discriminatory practices go on to today. That's why I started the the news today with that story about juvenile offenders being crushed by the fines and the costs of their, you know, having been arrested at a disproportionate rate. And that this is, so here you are, you're a juvenile, you're already one step below. And, you know, also minorities very often are, come from poorer families, don't have the right nutrition, the parents don't have the right child care for them. They, you know, their schools may be inadequate. Um, it's, there are so many levels, and, and discrimination just keeps going on and on and on and on. They're probably more likely to have lead in their water, <laughs> you know, honestly. We know that what happened in Flint, Michigan would never have happened in Beverly Hills. You know, if there has been some kind of tainted water in Beverly Hills, then something would have been done about it. You know, and that's a predominantly black community. So I think it's so important what you're sharing uh, Emmanuel and you guys is that these kinds of discriminations keep happening. So it's not like yesterday we need to make reparations for slavery. It's like people have been pushed further and further under. Yeah. No, absolutely. And it's and, you know, and, and these discriminations then manifest themselves in a whole variety of different places, whether it's low, you know, lower home ownership rates today greater rates of unemployment, you know, income inequality, which I know you had mentioned at the top of the, of the program, um, you know, a, a, a lower ability to weather a financial storm. Um, we find, you know, CFED, uh, we have this metric um, uh, called the liquid asset poverty, uh, which says, you know, um, it, it's, a, it's a measure by which we kind of determine how, how financially stable a, fi- a family is and how, you know, how close to the edge they're living. And right now, um, over two thirds of Black and, and Hispanics uh, households uh, are literally one paycheck away from uh, you know living in poverty, um, and 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 it shows up in other things that you you know you you see but you might not necessarily connect them to whether it's predatory products and services, payday lending, um, you know other alternative financial services and products that are really kind of you know they're they're useful in a sense because they allow. Uh, these communities to be able to to access the financial system, but they're draining you know much needed money and, and wealth from these communities. So it's a you know it's a cascading effect, but it's really not just necessarily you know contained to to the dollars and cents. It's you know it's it's visible in in a whole variety of different places. Yeah. Now, okay, Josh, you're a white guy, right? Why do you I care? Am. Why should you care? Why should you even care? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the the thing about the modern day racial wealth gap is it, it's driven by policies that create inequalities that are bad for everyone. I mean, we've talked on this show about how inequality is bad for everyone involved in society. I mean, people would prefer to live in more equal societies, and they prefer to live in society in, in societies that are more equal have better health outcomes, better happiness indexes, things of all that, that nature. Um, and the 
creation of the racial wealth gap, as we've talked about, goes back to slavery. And what's interesting to me today is that you know modern day depictions of racism are are very clear cut in the media. I mean, we just had this whole white lives matter movement trying to uh, supersede the black lives matter black lives matter movement, and I mean that those folks are just outright blatantly racist, showing things like. Uh, you know, Nazi symbols and and Confederate flags and all the like, and that's that's really like in your face, and that's in the media that we see. What we don't see is the kind of racism that happens behind public policy that claims to be race neutral. And yeah. what I'm thinking about here in our report, we talk about um, tax expenditures, and tax expenditures is a super wonky part of the tax code in which Congress doles out basically discounts to people to incentivize certain behaviors. And, and on their face, there's nothing particularly wrong with them. However, how they're distributed, one of the stats that we point to, which comes originally from, from CFED, is that when you break down... Could you down, remind us what CFED is? Sure. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> no, <laughs> Cor- uh, <laughs> Corporation for Enterprise Development. Okay. That sounds very Republican to me. Emmanuel, do you work there? I do, and in the I'm name shocked. is a, <laughs> no. The name is a is something that our founder Bob Friedman uh, came up with early on. We were focused on on uh, you know early on we were focused on micro entrepreneurs, uh, but it's something that we've wrestled with for a while. And you know, there's been uh, countless conversations of of possible you know uh, rebranding, but but you know, CFED is 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 where we are, and and it's a you know it's. Um, you know, we've done, you know, uh, a tremendous amount of research, which I know Josh was just going to get to on the tax yeah. code, but, but uh, it is, you know, the reality is that the, that Congress right now, you know, spends over half a trillion dollars uh, to incentivize this behavior, whether it's uh, saving for a home or saving for retirement or starting a business or, uh, you know, uh, and, and the unfortunate truth is that um, as Josh was, was starting to allude, it's uh, on, on its face, you know, there's nothing wrong with it, but if you dig in deeper, uh, you'll find that that not only are are you know the wealthy benefiting from this, but but it's you know the the wealthy white individuals are benefiting from the tax code. And so um, on the flip side of that, you have you know people of color that are that are you know are earning and and living uh, you know we're living a, pay, a paycheck to paycheck, earning uh, their their money versus you know earning it off of in, off of investments. Um, and they're getting, you know, uh, barely uh, $150 from the tax code while millionaires are getting $150,000 from the tax code. Oh, that's fair. So, yeah. Josh, did you want to finish your thoughts before I, I read the end? Because when you use, throw around, like, labels like that, people might say, did I miss something? Because <laughs> <So, laughs> I think yeah. I missed it. So <laughs> No, that's fine. I mean, okay. corporate. Corporation for Enterprise Development, I could see, would be, um, you know, to, to some of the listeners, might not sound like a progressive organization, but they've been on this beat for years and years, putting out fantastic research, and they've been a joy to work with. So we and, have- I, and I love the idea, really. I mean, who ever said that the capitalists should own enterprise or that the wealthy should own enterprise? Why can't everybody own enterprise? Why aren't we all enterprising? In our own lives. So I, I say more power to you. But anyway, so Josh, did we interrupt a thought of yours? No, no, that's okay. Emmanuel picked up right where I left <laughs> off. So that was, that was a good synergy. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the point I was trying to make is that, you know, racism in, in things like, you know, the judiciary, the judicial, judicial system and in 
mass incarceration, it's very in your face. It's very obvious what's going on. Within yeah. the tax code, it, it's nuanced. It's, it's hidden a little bit. And you have yeah. to dig a little bit to, to show that, oh, like, wait a minute. We all want to be able to get ahead and we all want to be able to save for things like homeownership and retirement and college education. But the folks who are getting a huge leg up for those incentives, for those savings, happen to be already wealthy and also happen to be white. And the yeah. folks who aren't getting the benefits from our tax code to be able to get these incentives are not wealthy and are most often not white. So what we're seeing is is a explicitly racist policy hidden behind race-neutral terminology. And that's, that's exactly where we're pointing to for the, some of the problems that are driving the racial wealth divide and also some of the opportunities to be able to begin to fix it. I mean, if public policy contributed to creating a racial wealth divide, public policy can also play a leading role in beginning to dismantle it. Oh, no, that's welfare. You can't give p- poor people welfare. You can only give welfare to the rich. <laughs> One of the policies we point to would be a government-wide audit that would just look at these policies and okay. say which, which of the policies in place are currently contributing to the racial wealth divide, which are beginning to dismantle it, and which of the proposed policies on each side would have that effect as well. So we could say concretely, here's how we can fix this problem, and we know. Currently, there's no agency or organization within the federal government that's looking at that in a very serious and sustained way. Yeah, and who are you asking to do this? I mean, how are you trying to implement this? Getting well, we, people, yeah, getting we the think government. This could, we think this could come from the next administration without even taking an act of Congress, and this could be in the first 100 days of the next president's administration. But we know Donald Trump won't do that. Well, I mean, I... Do, I, do you think that Donald Trump might do that? I don't hold out a lot of hope for Donald Trump. I also... I mean, don't don't spend a lot of time thinking about what a Trump administration might look like, um, except when I'm, you know, in bed, cutting to the covers, watching <laughs> horror movies. But I mean, the point of the point of the matter is that I mean, this could be done. Congress is currently not passing a lot of legislation. This could be done without needing Congress. It could be done in the next administration. It could be done, um, and it, it it wouldn't necessarily require serious part. I mean, Donald Trump, in, you know, in the unlikely and inconceivable notion in which he becomes president. And he wants to say things like, oh, you know, I, I'm uh, get, taking this issue seriously. Even if he weren't to pass legislation that would address the issue, he could, at least, least, he could at least look at the issue to say, well, what's driving it and what's causing it? I mean, that's not, that's not partisan in any way. That's simply saying, you know, there, there's an a existence of a racial wealth divide what are we doing that's helping or hurting it? That, that's not necessarily even that, you know, wild of a thought. That's not, you know, some leftist, crazy, <laughs> wild idea. That's, that's, I think, a pretty moderate approach, which oh. <laughs> I don't associate the word moderate with Donald Trump either, but it's, it's at least within the realm of possibility of, of, you know, something a Republican might do. Well, I hate to tell you that there was a poll today that showed that Donald Trump was ahead by two percentage points. Well, I mean, we we at our uh, nonprofit, nonpartisan organizations don't wade too much into the presidential, you know, horse race politics of polls changing by the minute. But right, right. I mean, within what what policy could accomplish, and what what people should be pushing the next administration to do? Because as at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily, you know, matter what what you know they think. It's what people are going to willing to push them to do. I'm so, so I'm so glad you said that because. 
It really, I mean, it's not like we are pro-Hillary. It's like we just think we might have more leverage with Hillary. And the, the question is who, you know, go out there, whoever is in charge, and say, we're not going away. We're not going away. This is a serious problem. But I, I want us to get even more into the why we should care. See, I can just see this when you talk about things like home ownership, Homeowners get to deduct their interest, mortgage interest, from their taxes. Right. Okay. Now, if home ownership is predominantly white, then more white people are going to be benefiting from that. Now, somebody talks about eliminating the mortgage interest write-off, which I know you're not saying that that's what it should, should be done specifically, maybe ultimately. But when you say that, see, what happens is people like me who are like, you know, have no savings, right, <laughs> are too old and don't have enough money for retirement. Um, you know, it's like, ah, you know, what's going to happen? So I think that the fear, we have to directly, at least we do on our show, you know, you don't have to do this. This is our, my job uh, and our job is to really address that. What about you if you're sitting out there and you're the, you know, typical white person family uh, and you're just making it as because, Josh, you've come on the show and you've talked about e- income inequality outside of race. And it's horrific and it's getting more horrific all the time. Uh, by the way, I've read in several places that the white middle class or the middle class has gotten a little bit of a raise uh, in the last year um, so that there is a slight uptick. I don't know if that's true or not. That's what I've read. But that that isn't going to be showing up for you know minorities. And I want to get a little bit more into why it's happening with, uh, for Hispanics because I think we see the institutionalized racism against black people has gone back to, you know, Slave times. Um, But for us to really look at that and say, okay, each one of us is struggling. We are struggling in our lives. Why should I care about them? I have to protect number one. Is that short-sighted thinking that, that prevents us from noticing that when people are paid poorly and they and they can get the same job that I might have to get, you know, that I want to do. It's I'm losing my leverage in the marketplace if there are so many people out there who are willing to work for less. It's just common sense. And this is this divide and conquer. We see it internationally. Uh, American companies dumping their plants and their facilities and going overseas where maybe they can get away with even worse labor practices, even worse environmental practices, uh, getting products cheaper, being able to come back to the market. Uh, Just like that story we heard about General Motors that I brought up on the news today about General Motors using these Takata airbags that were made in Japan. And the Swedish suppliers said, no, we cannot do this. We cannot compete and make these airbags that way because it's not safe. But they said no. Right? Sure. I mean, there, there, there's a lot of issues out there that we could run through. And there's, and there's, you know, an entire slate that we could sort of run through all the different problems facing America. One interesting one, uh, poll that just came out from Pew about I think two weeks ago, Pew Research, showed that 
if you ask people, this election is like, oh, what do they care most about? What's the issue that's bothering them the most? The only issue that gained over 50% of con- folks saying they were concerned about it was the gap between the wealthy and everyone else. So the gap between the rich and poor is the issue that's captured the interest and is most uh, pressing for folks this election cycle and in this country. Our report simply makes the case that that gap has a racial component to it. That racial component is rooted in public policy over the course of many decades. And the solution to that is a different set of public policy that could intentionally fix it. So to your question about why should folks care about that, I'm not here to explain you know, the, the inner workings of the American psyche, but I am saying that people already do care about that, and that's showing up in public polling. So what's interesting to us is that you know, if folks say we want to address inequality, which they are time, time and time again, we're pointing out ways to do that and a, and a path forward for how we might begin to address this, what we think is a very pressing issue in, in politics today. Unfortunately, I mean, I agree with you, Josh, but what I'm saying is that for a lot of people, it's their in- the inequality that hurts them. They're not necessarily having empathy or caring for other people. They're not looking at, uh, I'm not saying nobody does. I think there's a lot of people who just care, you know, right, who I don't mean- need self-interest to care. They just care. But there are so many issues that, I mean, there's the competition for the, for the dollar. It's also the safety of your neighborhood or anywhere you live. If people are angry or if people feel oppressed, it's going to show up. You know, it's eventually it's going to show up. If you have a little store in a, in a neighborhood, in a minority neighborhood, and there's a lot of tension between the Asian, it used to be this, I don't know what it is now, this is, you know, dates me. Okay, you have the Asian shopkeepers and the black people who are going to the store and these Asian shopkeepers are like one step above them. But it's going to come out anger at them because the prices are too high. or You know, it's like we are not safe in a world where people are oppressed. I don't think people are willing to understand that. You cannot build a wall between us and Mexico. And you cannot build a wall between white people and disgruntled black people. And, and I don't think white people want to hear that. Colin, what is his name? Kaepernick, or I don't know how to pronounce his name. This NFL football player that refused to... Kaepernick. Kaepernick? Okay. Yeah. You know, he's not going to sing, stand up for the national anthem because he's making a protest against the disproportionate use of police violence against black people. You know, there's this big uproar about this. Like, that's unpatriotic to some people. But it's damn patriotic. That's very small. That's a very small statement compared to somebody coming in with a shotgun and shooting you. You know, you cannot build a wall because we are an integrated society. We may have uh, not integrated neighborhoods, but our world, you're, you, know, you don't know that the cup that you're drinking from, whether it was made by a white person, a black person, a Hispanic person, a gay person... You know, our world is, you know, we are in this together. Certainly, a lot of the food that we're eating has been picked by Latinos. And so, you, what are you going to do? You're going to let people rot and, and be hurt 
and get in get angry and depressed or angry and enraged and then think that somehow we are going to be able to avoid the social consequences of that the addiction the unhappiness the frustration <laughs> the violence yeah I mean, but I understand you're you're speaking to the to the Donald Trump uh, meme and, and aspects of of the country, and unfortunately, those those aspects have been in this country since its founding. Um, and the 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 White Lives Matter movement and the modern uh, hate groups that are that are backing a lot of that type of thinking, you know, unfortunately, are still around. Um, I mean, what the I don't think that we're necessarily speaking to those folks. I, I don't know that we have the message that will resonate. With um, you know the white nationalists and and some of the the truly um, you know despicable uh, behavior that we've seen among outright racists in this country, yeah. I think there's a lot of moderate folks who are, to your point, very scared of their slipping uh, economic um, placement. I mean, the lack of social message that would resonate with um, you know the white nationalists and and some of the the truly um, you know despicable. Uh, behavior that we've seen among outright racists in this country. Yeah. I think there's a lot of moderate folks who are, to your point, very scared of their slipping uh, economic um, placement. I mean, the lack of social mobility in this country for for folks uh, across the racial spectrum, I mean, worse for black and Latino than it is for whites, but certainly true for a lot of white families. I yeah. mean, that's a real concern. And, you know, in our in our report, what we talk about is you know, the policies that could begin to help the folks at the bottom who are struggling and the folks in the middle who are struggling. Mm-hmm. And one thing that we haven't talked about in this, in this segment is, you know, who's doing really well. Um, mm-hmm. Donald Trump is a good example of someone who's doing really well because he's a billionaire. And there's a big dispute over how many billions he has, <laughs> but there's no dispute that he has a billion dollars. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things we point to in the report is the rise of the concentration of wealth. The, you know, where are the resources? It's not like, you know, the, the median uh, white family took all of the resources of the median black family. That, that's not right. necessarily how it worked. You know, assets trickled all the way up to the point where over the past 30 years, the wealth of the Forest 400 has grown over 700%. Uh, it's 27 times the rate that uh, the average black population grew in wealth. So what we're seeing is that, you know, the wealth is concentrating significantly and as you pointed out, we have politics of blame happening um, that's taken on a racialized tone. So I think it's very important for listeners to understand that uh, as these issues are, are trickling, are, are matriculating, and you know, we're seeing the, you know, a lot of different things being talked about in a short time on this program today, you know, the, the, what folks should take away is that you know, the, this is not by accident. This is not just happening yeah. in a vacuum. We're not seeing these trends and then saying, throwing our hands up, wondering how it all came to be. Now, this yeah. is a direct result of intentional public policy. And what, what folks should take away is that, you know, when they talk to their Congress members, when they talk to their elected representatives, they should be calling for direct policies that begin to, to reverse this trend. Um, I, mean, I mean, Emmanuel could speak more to some of the other policies that we, that we push in this uh, report. One of the ones that we talk about is the federal estate tax. I mean, dismantling the concentration of wealth will require changes in the tax code. One of those is the federal estate tax or inheritance tax that is the only serious con- uh, check on the concentration of wealth we have. Donald Trump says he wants to uh, eliminate the tax. So some 
congressional Republicans. Other folks say they want to expand it. Senator Bernie Sanders has been championing this issue for decades now. Um, I mean, this this is one of the issues where we look at. I mean, when you look at the estate tax, it doesn't seem to be particularly, uh, you know, like, why should you care? Why should I care? I'll never pay the estate tax. But what it does, <laughs> it, I mean, let, let, me, let me make a make major shocking radio announcement that I don't happen to have $11 million to pass on to my heirs. Oh, no! Minimum threshold that anyone will have to pay for the estate tax. Um, I mean, that, that, is, that is a serious policy that I think needs to stay in place, even though I'm not directly impacted by it, because I'm directly impacted by the over $300 million that would be added to the federal deficit were the estate tax to be eliminated. So, I mean, again, I, I think Emmanuel should jump in with other policies that, that, that we point to as ways that are solutions to this that folks should be taking to their elected representatives as we're talking about ways through the quagmire that we've been discussing this hour. Yes, and, uh, you know, I'm not asking you to say the things that I'm saying. I'm, you know, representing the inner revolution, and I'm calling on people to really start thinking differently because that the this is them and this is us is really so much of a problem. And what you're saying is that we are all in this together. It's all of us are finding that we're, that our power and wealth are slipping away relative to the wealthy. Uh, Emmanuel, take it away. What would you like to add before... So I'll, have to, yeah, yeah, no, I'll you know to to follow up on the comment about uh, the you know the solutions you, you know we and given the time we are in now with austerities and 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 pay fors in Congress, uh, you know one solution that we have proposed here is reforming the tax code. Those six hundred and sixty six billion dollars that we had mentioned earlier, uh, you know we could reform the tax code today in a way that benefits low and moderate income people and particularly people of color and not have to spend an additional dollar. All we have to do is redirect, you know, where we're spending this money uh, to support millionaires and, and billionaires to buy a second or third home. We can invest that money into a home, you know, homeowner's uh, uh, tax credit. We could uh, give every child a, ch- a savings account and help them kind of increase that uh, from birth to until they've reached 18. Um, you know, we can help uh, people uh, build up their retirement savings and things like that. But the one thing I did want to kind of... Uh, uh, add to to this conversation about you know um, about you know us versus them and why this should matter um, to uh, to the broader public. Um, I, you know I think we you know we not only looked at the last thirty years up to now, but but as Josh mentioned at the top of the segment, we looked at the next thirty years um, and the next thirty years. The way the report you know kind of worked it, uh, out, uh, the next thirty years you know thirty years from this point are actually a little under thirty years. Um, the U.S. Census Bureau is estimating that the country will will take this ginormous shift uh, and become a country of uh, you know where more than half of the entire population is made up of people of color. Um, if we continue on this path where we are now, where people of color are um, you know financially insecure and have a you know a diminished amount of wealth in comparison to to white wealth, uh, we're going to be in trouble. And so at that point, yeah. you know, it's not going to be a racial issue. Or, or a social justice issue, it's going to be those two things plus an economic issue, and if anything, perhaps the economic issue facing our country. So I think that's probably, you know, if, if, if you want to take it, if, if we're trying to convince folks, I think that's that's the biggest key. It's that, yeah. you know, the the we're all in this together. Um, yes. You know, that, that should be the message. But in, in 2043, we're definitely going to be in this together. And <laughs> uh, Latinos and black households are not doing well. Uh, the economic security of this country is not going to, you know, it's not going to fare well either. That is fabulous. Uh, 
James, in one second, I'd like you to t- tell us what we're doing next week, but f- could somebody give us your website so people can get more information about what they can do? Absolutely. I'll uh, jump in quickly. CFED, our website is at uh, www.cfed.org, uh, and you'll find the report right on our homepage and, and a handful of other research uh, and, and other publications that we have. Fantastic. Okay, James, take it away. Okay, next week, some prisoners are tackling violence and winning. Can we? An interview with Stephen Gelb. Violence is something our world has too much of, and many people are trying to change that. One such group is the Alternatives to Violence Project, AVP, active in 33 U.S. states and 45 countries. It was founded by Quakers based on their belief in our inborn potential for peace, but it's gone beyond the Quaker community, and it's been picked up by many others in many venues. Is it working? Do we have an inborn potential for peace? What brings it out? On this show, we talked to Stephen Gelb, a guy who has been working with AVP in the California prison system. He will share about building brotherhood with male prisoners and how it's impacted him, and we'll discuss what his experience means for us all. So let's find out what AVP is accomplishing and what more our society can do to integrate our prison population and bring their gifts to the world. But beyond that, let's think about what more we can do to heal the violence, physical and emotional, in our world. And now for a final word from Beth. Just want to quickly say, I love that last point you made, Emmanuel, which is we are going to be a majority of minorities. So it's time for us to stop thinking of we as either black or white or whatever, because we are we. (laughs) And this is our land. And this is our problem. So I really appreciate both of you. Guys, you have so much information. God bless. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.